Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. And and today we have the honor of being joined by Mrs. Marissa Tellez of the Crocodilian Research Coalition. Marissa, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? All good here. Great. So, Marissa, could you first tell us a little bit about the uh, CRC? Sure. So, the Crocodile Research Coalition... It was established in January 2016, and the CRC, our mission is to promote conservation of crocodiles and their habitat throughout Central America and the Caribbean through research, education, and community involvement. And obviously, crocodiles are our focal species. However, we take a more holistic approach when it comes to conservation because, you know, that's great. We have saved the crocodiles here in Belize. We have done what is needed to increase their numbers, but the majority of their habitat, especially nesting habitat, has been lost. Their primary prey species has been lost. Um, At that point, what was all of our effort about? So not only do we just conduct research on crocodiles. We also conduct research on crocodiles and educate communities about other wildlife within crocodilian habitat because there are so many unique and probably still unknown interactions that crocodiles have with with other wildlife in their habitat. So that's why we, it's not, it, it is focused on crocodiles, but again, we take this more wide range various other fauna, including we're going to get into iguanas now, uh, snakes, jaguar, but also protecting their habitat, because without habitat, it's going to be really difficult to protect the species. What um, what what got you into like um, herpetology and reptiles and, and crocodilians in general? Oh, man. So I blame my father. <laughs> I was about five years old. And it was like my birthday or Christmas, and I remember, you know, I, I had a, an older brother that wished I was a younger brother, so I was very much a tomboy from a very young age, but, you know, I still liked the, the My Little Ponies and the Barbie dolls, and so, again, it's my, it's, it's Christmas or my birthday, and I'm waiting to get a My Little Pony, and my dad just gives me a thin stack, and it's three books, and one of the books is about great white sharks. So that got me into apex predators. And through that, I started learning about snakes and I started learning about crocodiles and alligators. And I, at a young age, I was about eight years old and I decided I wanted to be an advocate for these animals that just weren't getting the attention and love that they needed. And many of these reptiles um, and crocodilians, they're so important for their environment and they have these really unique cultural ties. So if we lose these animals, technically you're kind of losing a bit of your history, a bit of your culture. So I just wanted to be a voice and an advocate for these animals. And so moving forward, um, I feel like it's a little cliche, but there's so many people in my generation that we got into crocodilians because of one crazy Australian dude. And I remember I was 15 years old and, you know, everyone kind of knew me. I was the, the, 
the wild girl at the all-girl Catholic school and stuff that wanted to just go out in the jungle work with animals. And someone came to my locker and was like, Marissa, there's this guy from Australia and he's like all about like jumping on crocodiles and he's trying to get people to love crocodiles. And I didn't have cable. So I was like, all right, well, let me see if I can go to a friend's house and try to look this up. It just sounded interesting. And Steve Irwin's passion and his love for crocodiles and just seeing how he was very passionate about getting people who are already demonizing this this species or this particular animal without even ever even interacting with them sometimes seeing that passion to try to get people to at least tolerate and want to coexist that love and passion really transcended into me and that's when i was like you know what not great white sharks not snakes i am going to be an advocate a researcher and educator about crocodilians that's um that's funny too uh because that's what's so great about steve Irwin. because i was talking to a guy of an older generation and he didn't he wasn't a fan of steve Irwin, and um mainly because he thought that when he went outside of like crocodilians you know sometimes he got information wrong which you know he did and uh but i was telling him i was like yeah but he like his passion and everything got so many people of our generation into in, into reptiles and stuff and, and it's been so so good for the 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 study and the hobby and everything so exactly and i mean that's the thing is like now that i have grown in my career i i see some of these old shows of his you know and i'm like oh my gosh i would never do that or like that is not the way to do crocodilian yeah, research yeah. that's not how you handle and this and that like you know but and even then and like even some of the crocodilian researchers in the world they also will say yeah uh, we did not agree with his methods however even with that disagreement all of them will agree he did so much for crocodile conservation he was able to pull people that wanted to kill or had no interest he was able to pull them in and to be like all right they're not that bad so he, he still did an amazing job, even though, like, he, again, people like me now who fell in love with crocodiles because of Steve Irwin, now I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't do that. But I will always acknowledge that I got into this field because of him. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what? So a lot of what you do, obviously, is conservation, but it also deals with, like, interactions um, between crocodilians and, and other crocodilians or, or other species. So kind of tell us more about that. So here in Belize, where... The CRC is based. We have two crocodile species. We have the American crocodile, which is more of your coastal and your key crocodile species. However, we have observed this species moving further inland, mixing or starting to push further, even further inland is the Morelets crocodile. And the Morelets crocodile is more of your freshwater species, your inland lakes lagoons, rivers, you will find them along the coast ever so often, but these species are sympatric on the mainland and there is hybridization happening. And there have been previous studies that discuss that it's a natural phenomenon. More or less crocodiles and American crocodiles have been hybridizing for a little over a thousand generations. Now, one of the projects that we're looking into in collaboration with a PhD student is how has human impact possibly increased hybridization between these two species? Because one thing that we are hypothesizing right now is 
Both of these species, similar to the 28 species around the world in about the 1950s, they all went extinct because of the fashion industry. And so, because this was right after World War II, so in, in case you're not familiar, it was, you know, in the Civil War, World War I, World War II, it is known that crocodilian skin was being utilized for the military. As, you know, very thick skin, you got the osteoderms, um, people are utilizing the skin for boots, and you had these particular uh, businesses that were creating the military uniform utilizing crocodilian skin, and World War II, right, it was the war to end all wars, and it's like, oh man, what do we do now? Oh, well, let's make it into fashion, and so with the fashion industry, crocodilian skin became very lucrative, and that is where we started to see a huge decline of crocodilians around the world in the 1950s. There was, here in Belize, there's an old report from the from 1890s that said every body of water here in Belize was infested, that's what they would say, infested with crocodilians or with crocodiles. You could just get a flashlight or a, a torch at that point. It would be a sea of red eyes. However, within 10 years, 15 to 10 to 15 years, once the fashion industry became a big thing, I mean, it was hard to find one crocodile. Mm. And so going back into the hybridization, so we have the 60s, the 70s, even early 80s. I mean, you have a more or less crocodile, like a male more or less crocodile, and you have a female American crocodile. They can't find another from their same species, and they're their mating and their nesting season is there's a little bit of an overlap. So it's like, well, I can't find a female Morlets. I can't find a male American. Well, let's just get it on. And so it's very possible because there was such a low number of both species, because we hunted them to almost extinction, that increased the rate of hybridization. Now, both species here in Belize, they have recovered quite a bit. The American crocodile is still struggling, but now what we're most likely what's happening, it's not necessarily the pressure of hunting, but it's the pressure of losing habitat that is increasing hybridization. So for the American crocodile, they like to nest in sandy beaches. And of course, beaches, I mean, that's, that's great for the tourism. That's great for all the retirees that are looking for that retirement Caribbean home. So now you have all this development on these nice sandy beaches. And again, they're just losing habitat. So now they're pushing further inland. So we have, in a sense, the past that has created an increased rate of hybridization. And now we have the present with, again, causing habitat loss that may be increasing the rate of hybridization, at least here in Belize. So I actually have two questions off that. So the first one, um... Is the, is the habitat loss causing them to move more inland? Or do you know why they're moving more inland? So we hypothesize two things. One, yes. I think the primary is that they are losing habitat, so they're pushing further inland. Um, one of the reasons why the Morlets crocodile most likely has increased in numbers or has recovered from past exploitation more so than the American crocodile is the more or less crocodile lives in habitat that 
maybe most people don't want to live. It's just a little too further inland. It's a little too much, too jungly, too many mosquitoes. And Belize is a right now. It is attracting a lot of Americans, Canadians, Europeans, and they want to live. They want to live by the sea. So with that, again, the American crocodile, uh, it is losing habitat. Now, something else that I thought of in the last couple months is it's possible the American crocodile is just the superior competitor. And this is the reason why. So I was conducting the, I was assisting in conducting the first countrywide population survey of the American crocodile in Dominican Republic. The last one was in the early 1980s that was conducted. And while I was there, I was speaking to the curator of reptiles. Um, his name's uh, Christian. I can't remember his last name. My bad. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening. If you're going to listen to this, <laughs> forgot your last name. <laughs> but he also assists in a lot of the paleontology digs around Dominican Republic. And they have found skulls of rhombifer, Crocodilus rhombifer, which is known as the Cuban crocodile. Now, there's also been a skull of rhombifer that has been found on the Bahamas. And, you know, fast forward to even some of the discussions I'm having with some of my Cuban colleagues, because as we know, the we have the Cuban and the American crocodile species in Cuba. And the Cuban crocodile is not doing so great with recovery as much as the American. But what they're starting to see even in Cuba is that the American crocodile is kind of taking over. It's illustrating that it is the superior competitor. Now let's look at to these particular fossils of rhombifer and these other areas that are now a little bit more dominated by the American crocodile. So is it just possible the American crocodile is the superior competitor when it is living in sympatry or with another crocodile species and just kind of slowly Push, has slowly pushed other species out of extinction. And that's the thing is like in our lifetime, I mean, we're, we're seeing a, a nanosecond over geological, over a geological time scale right now, but maybe and thousands, maybe even a million years, there's not going to be no more morelettes per se in the, in Belize. It's only going to, or what's known as Belize, depending on tectonics, but let's not get that kind of crazy. But, um, you know, at that point, it is, you know, it's very possible that there may only be the American crocodile in what is known as Belize, and again, in like thousands of millions of years, because it is the superior competitor. And uh, what are so, some, uh, uh, what would be some reasons why it would be a superior competitor? Well, you know what? It's, <laughs> it's so funny because up to my trip in Dominican Republic, which was just this past June, and talking with my Dominican colleagues, and then at that point, talking with my Cuban colleagues, I would have thought the American crocodile was the inferior competitor. <laughs> because it is, like, compared to the Morelettes here, like, it's so, the American crocodiles are so timid. They're, they're so shy, especially with humans. And I just, when we do capture surveys the american crocodile will like struggle for a bit and be like okay you got me whereas the more or less crocodiles i mean they are just 
fighting and fighting and fight like they'll just fight the whole time like like you just can't you can't even let a little bit of restraint go like even just like a, a little hairline because they'll feel that and the more left will keep fighting you so and saying that i mean at least when you know you have colonization from the early americans so in the caribbean like looking at the caribbean the tayanos um Maybe it was because the American crocodile was so timid and shy that it was, you know, more difficult in the sense of hunting. And maybe the Cuban crocodile was a little bit more forceful that it was easier to succumb to human hunting thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, we also have to look at uh, the Cuban crocodile. And it is known that it had evolved to take down very large prey, possibly even giant sloth, and a lot of those animals, um, those older prey items, it at least went extinct in Dominican Republic. It has gone extinct in Cuba. Um, I would think, though, the crocodiles can easily adapt to preying upon another size of prey, but maybe it's prey-related. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, there's just so many more questions to kind of think about it. Um, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking about the, the fashion industry and all that, um, I was curious what you thought on this. So I've asked a few people on this and people have had different opinions on it. Um, your thoughts on, is in regards to conservation, like having, um, uh, like, um, I lost my train of thought, hang on, <laughs> having, um, like an economy, like uh, like uh, incentivization um, through conservation. So, like for instance, like with um, like an alligator, like there's the, the the meat in the in the skin, and so you can use that of what people want to help conserve them. So, like um, you keep you know fifty percent of a clutch, which is more that would survive in the wild, half mm -hmm. big like the trade and the other. Half. It gets people to care about it. I guess is the economic incentive. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I mean, that's our world now, right? It, everything revolves around money. And that's why there is such a push, or there has been a push um, in regards of the crocodilian community, um, particularly within the IUCN Crocodile Specialist Group, um, I think 20, 30 years ago, this, is, this idea of sustainable use. Um, because for many even especially in the developing countries, um, even if there was a cultural tie, most likely that cultural tie has been lost due to colonization, that it's very hard for people to just want to protect just because. Mm -hmm. We are seeing a bit of a change here in Belize where people are finding a bit more pride in protecting their crocodiles because of a cultural tie, a historic cultural tie. Um, but in many areas, you know, you need to put food on the table. Um, will we go through a more legal process of a ranching program where it's most likely not going to hinder, but only improve the local population of crocodiles. And with that, it also provides an incentive to protect habitat, which is going to have this positive umbrella effect for other species in that area um, or 
do we take a more stern method and say, nope, we're not going to do any type of ranching program, any type of economic incentive, and then you're going to have, and again, we see this more in the developing countries, um, that's, that's when you see the increase of illegal hunting or poaching um, of a particular species where there is none of that economic incentive. So someone is just going to go the legal route and then you're going to see possibly a quick spiral, um, a downward spiral of a population. So in every, every population or species is, is a bit different because you, again, you do have um, certain, you know, even within a culture, you might have a particular village that is looking for that economic incentive and is willing to protect the crocodiles and their habitat if they get something out of a ranching program where, you know, they, they collect 50% of that nest and that 50, you know, those particular eggs are getting raised in some type of facility and those people get money. Um, but then you might, again, within a particular country, you might have another, um, another village that's like, no, 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 we are still very connected to crocodiles or to our, our cultural roots, or we're just reviving our cultural roots where if we kill that crocodile, that is killing our grandfather. You know, when we die, we become crocodiles. And you do see that across the world. I mean, even here in Belize, Belize is a small country. It is 22,000 kilometers square, and we only have 400,000 people. And every village is like where, where we are, Placencia Lagoon, the idea of a ranching system, no, we don't need a, we don't need ranching. Let's just protect. Let's, you know, let's um, a little bit more tourism. You know, we, we have a 13, 14 foot American crocodile, Charlie, that we've kind of are creating to be our, our Nessie of Placencia Lagoon, you know? And so, and there's no need, but then you go across the lagoon to another community and they're all about the ranching system. And part of that is those that you still have people that are living off the land and you go back and their grandfather would hunt crocodile, but it was a, it was a source of protein. It's like going out and hunting deer, um, going out fishing per se, because at the end of the day, they don't have money to go to the store to buy pork, to buy cattle. So you really just have to understand the situation um, of, you know, in a sense that not even just that particular country, but just the particular areas and see how to develop uh, particular conservation programs because some may, may be more of a conservation action plan whereas other programs kind of going through that that sustainable use may be more a little bit of uh of a sustainable use and management program so it's it's adapting and just kind of being aware of who you're interacting with so it's a it's more like a case-by-case -case basis you can't really like put a broad statement on anything absolutely absolutely what, um, so the hybridization that's happening, are they producing viable offspring? And what are, mm -hmm. what are they like? Are they, no, no, so yeah, what are, what are they like? Like, are they any different or like? Um, <laughs> so yeah, they, so the hybridization, yes, it is viable babies, viable babies. And if it is a 
pure American crocodile and a pure Morelette's crocodile, when you look at those F1s, you're like, what is that? Because it is just this hodgepodge of American and Morelette's. And so for our studies, because we were asked by government to conduct a countrywide Morelette's crocodile population survey, and then an American crocodile countrywide survey. Further inland and isolated populations, we can say, yes, those are very much more or less crocodiles. And then out in the Keys of Belize, we can say, oh, that is very much American crocodiles. But now mainland, it's we have all these morphological characteristics where we try to figure out, is this individual more more or less or is this individual more American? Um, and then from there, we kind of figure out who goes in our Morelettes database and who goes into our American database. And one thing that will be cool to see, because again, we've also, when we capture these animals and we're doing these morphological assessments, we're also getting genetic samples. And we have a PhD student right now that's doing the whole genetic analysis. So we'll get to see how good our morphological analysis is or compares with the actual genetics of the individual. And we're hoping from there that we can develop a improved key in regards of how to move forward in identifying species here in Belize. So would you say it's a, it's a good thing the hybridization isn't like inhibiting uh, like the gene pool or anything like that? Yeah, you know, it's, it is an interesting conservation question, right? Because us as humans, we have to have, we have to organize and separate everything, right? That's why we have the whole taxonomic system. And like, I don't know, I just remember when I was in school, it was just the basic, you know, kingdom phylum class order, you know, all that. And now it's like suborder and sub this and sub that. It's just because we just, we want to compartmentalize and... Um, in regards of here in Belize and the and southern Mexico, where Morelettes and Americans also inhabit, as well as Guatemala, it's just kind of you know at first it's like oh no, we got to make sure that the Morelettes and the Americans like they don't hybridize. But again, they've been doing it for over a thousand generations. It, it is this natural phenomenon, and at the end of the day, maybe. What we're seeing right now is the evolution of a new species through hybridization, through introgression, and it's the way of this particular animal, crocodilian, to survive, especially as a result of anthropogenic impact. So would you say in general, looking at it from a conservation lens, whenever you see like two species hybridizing to just let it be? In regards to the crocodilians, like what we're seeing here, um, and I even talking to my Mexican colleagues, we're just, let it be. Absolutely. And of course, like there is that, we may have here in Belize, we might, we may have one pure population of more or less. And that, and like they're, they're isolated. They're, they're surrounded by mountains and valleys. And so we're very much like, let's let's keep that pure per se and then also we have the pure american crocodiles out on the further keys but here on the mainland we're just kind of like just 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 let it be just let it go 
So you mentioned you do some uh, other uh, research with some of the other local wildlife, see how they interact with crocodilians. Um, what are some of the other studies you've been working on? So the other, um, the other particular charismatic species that we've been working with, it's completely different from crocodiles. It's manatee. And how that came about is as we would be doing our crocodile research around the Placencia Lagoon, we would see manatee ever so often. And I would then send that information to my colleague, Jamal Galvis, who is known as the manatee man here in Belize, just for his particular records. Because so CRC, we are the only wildlife organization um, and scientific organization in Southern Belize that is, in a sense, that, that goes outside of our local area to do work. There is another group, Be Free. They are a turtle nonprofit, but they're, and they, their place is super awesome. They are tucked away like in the jungle, but they just kind of stay in their spot out and about and we're interacting with various wildlife. We also do tons of wildlife rescues. So, you know, where I'm just sending this information about manatee and then like, it just kind of, man, all the manatee are always where the crocodiles are. Like wherever there's manatee, there's crocodiles, wherever there's crocodiles, there's manatee. And I just, you know, we started taking out the drones and we just kind of started seeing some interesting behavior and sharing of habitat. And so I talked to Jamal, I was like, Hey, I'm going to apply for this grant to look at um, the population of manatee and crocodiles in the Placencia Lagoon and see if we pick up any inter interesting interactions. And one thing that we found out was there's no antagonistic uh, interaction between the manatee and the crocodiles. If anything, the crocodiles are more afraid of the manatee. I mean, manatee are huge. A nine-foot manatee trumps over a nine-foot crocodile. It's huge. And so... You know, there was one time where there was about a nine-foot manatee, and it was about a, a, an eight-foot crocodile. They're just kind of resting together. They're just chilling. They're like, "Yo, what's up? Like, how was your day?" It was just there's just no antagonist interaction. But one thing we have noticed, like when the manatee are moving, the crocodiles kind of move away. But they both utilize um, like juveniles and baby manatee, in a sense, utilize the same space, this, these shallow areas where it's just kind of more tucked away. Uh, and so that was something that was really, really interesting to kind of see. But this is this is also just an ongoing project right now. That's really cool. So, um, uh, so, so you're not sure exactly why so far yet that uh, them two seem to be together. No, we're, that, that's something that we're still kind of looking into. But in regards of, I think it's just they both prefer very similar habitat. You know, these these mangrove coves that are very, very shallow. A lot of those mangrove coves is where you find a lot of fish. So that's going to attract the crocodiles because the American crocodile, 95, 98% of its diet is fish. And then for the manatee, they like the shallow areas. So they have to come up to breathe an adult about every 15 to 20 minutes, if I believe I'm correct. And then for a baby, it's with it, it's the longest that they should hold their breath is five minutes. And so having these nice shallow areas, you know, you can kind of be like, if you need to sleep, 
right? It's just easy enough to be like, oh, I got to go up and breathe and just like kind of raise your head and just like, okay, take a deep breath and go back down kind of thing. So it's like these nice resting areas. Um, you also mentioned iguanas and, and jaguars. Yes. Yeah, so we are just about to start iguana and we're going to start these this iguana project looking at green iguanas because it is green iguanas it's there is a rehabilitation center here in belize but there's no current records of its population and so we do know that their pot that the population is endangered and so we are going to be collaborating with joe wazalewski who's very well known for his work with snakes and iguanas and crocodiles. And so he's gonna be collaborating with us to kind of just initiate a very basic green iguana population survey around the lagoon. And then we'll look into their mating behavior and reproductive cycle. So we're just about to get into that, which I'm really excited about. And another project I really wanna start on is snakes. There's just I, someone had started to do a very basic snake study in Belize years ago, and um, and there's you know just basic information, but there's not any thorough research on snakes here in Belize, and so that's another project I really, really would, I mean, I would love to support a graduate student in, or you know we even have long-term interns, uh, international interns here at the CRC, and so actually it's two long-term interns that are going to help with the Green Iguana project, so. Yeah, even if we get long-term interns, I'm always very happy when they want to jump on and uh, start a project here at the CRC. And then Jaguars, it's kind of, we've kind of, it's same thing how we kind of fell into manatee. Now we're kind of falling into Jaguars and it's because we, very, the various research we do around the lagoon, we have game camera traps. And so we're just picking up jaguars and so we're facilitating that information to forest department and then the key people that are conducting jaguar population surveys here in belize um one thing so you and you may not know the answer to this but um so like you were talking about how the green iguanas they're they're endangered over there and um obviously important to the ecosystem there as opposed to like here where I live in Florida, they're everywhere and everyone wants to get rid of them. Um, why, what, um, what, what's the, why would you say they're better there as opposed to here? So the reason they are endangered here is because they are bamboo chicken. So especially around Easter time, people are going out and hunting. And unfortunately, they like to go for the females because they like to make a stew out of their eggs, which is obviously going to impede the population. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people that um, there's just been a lack of education and regards of, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill the females and especially get the eggs because of, you know, you're, you're not going to give the next generation, possibly your kids or your grandkids, that chance to eat this cultural dish. You know, there, there's a way to do it sustainably. Um, so that's actually been the main thing. And it's been interesting talking with some colleagues in Florida. Uh, they want to see if we can create a program between Florida and the forest department here to bring some of those iguanas from Florida and release them here. And honestly, I think, I, I mean, people here in Belize, that they're going to, it's an iguana and especially because it's a cultural tie, they might be like, Oh, that's great. You know what I mean? Like we don't have like, we there, there's just like less of a fear that we're gonna out eat 
are iguanas or something, but and I know there's other countries like Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, um, they're also having issues with their green iguana populations being endangered. And at least in Nicaragua, they are starting iguana farming now to, to get the pressure off the wild populations. Do you think there would, do you know of any like possible adverse effects um, from transplanting the ones here to there? Like, you know, the habitats are similar, but I don't, you know, you never know. Real quick yes. in summary, all I was pretty much saying is that if we brought iguanas to uh, from Florida to, let's say, Belize, um, the best candidates would be babies that were just hatched, just because they're less likely to be exposed to various viruses, bacteria, and parasites in Florida. Keep them in a high quarantine facility in Florida, and then when it's when they transfer to Belize, obviously they would also have to go through the, the health um, monitoring as well as the quarantine as well. And then it would just be a small population at first because we just want to make sure that we're not just releasing um, some invasive uh, bacteria, virus, or parasite out into Belize. And so, you know, we would just start with a very small population, see how it works, and if it's successful, get them to start coming and rolling them in. So, um, obviously, since, you know, they're not going to be taking every iguana over here and shipping yeah. it over there, um, but, you know, people here really don't like them. <laughs> and um, and uh, as, you, as you mentioned, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of countries that are in need of them. So, like, way down the road, if, like, something happened to where they ended up taking, like, removing most of the iguanas out of here if, if that was to ever happen um since they're for the most part naturalized over here do you think there would be any adverse effects in with that bringing like those that are they're just so accustomed to florida and then bringing them over here um well adverse effects in florida from removing the iguanas oh adverse effects from florida well i don't think Let's see, when did the issue really start? Like, I felt like I only really started hearing about the iguana issue maybe within the last five years. Has it been more than that? The first time I heard about it, I was a kid. I was like, I don't know, like probably like 10, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's been a long time. Okay, for whatever reason, it only I, I really only started taking notice like maybe five years about the iguanas. Um. So that is really interesting. Um, how have they become now a part of the ecosystem in Florida? So that's something that researchers are going to have to look at. And I guess one particular thing that you can do is removing iguanas from one particular location and seeing how that affects the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, does it? Does the environment improve? Does it decrease? Does does nothing happen? And so that's something that's actually, that's a great question. That's a great research project right there. But yeah, because now these animals have just become accustomed to um, the Florida way of life, per se. Uh, have you... Because like, if you go over to Miami in that area, they're everywhere. I mean, they're, they're literally everywhere. Go ahead, Nate. Uh, have you noticed in Belize, have there been any... Uh ecological negative effects from uh, reduced iguana populations? Um, unfortunately, there's just not enough studies done to kind of look at that. 
I know speaking to colleagues that have done some very basic research from years ago, as well as the rehabilitation center, um, the Iguana Sanctuary in northern Belize, I mean, they have said that there's certain forests that aren't growing as fast because you now don't have these seed dispersers. So I just, I don't quite know, though, how much scientific research can actually back that up. But that is something that I do hear ever so often. I've also heard of them um, talking about doing the same thing with Burmese pythons, uh, taking the ones out of Florida and bringing them over to uh, Asia, Southeast Asia. I have heard, yeah, I've heard that too. I've heard that too. And it's just, it was, Joe Wazalewski was here in Belize helping out with some of the croc stuff that we we're doing in the beginning of August. And it just, it was fascinating to talk to him about the Python issue in Florida. Cause just like in my head, I'm like, how can there be that many? Like, how can you still be finding them and finding these, you know, 10 to 15? I, I, he also mentioned like a 16 footer. And I'm like, I just, how, how do people not see these large snakes? And I know like a lot of them are in these foresty areas or let's say the Everglades and stuff. And so it's just, it, it was, I knew there was an issue, but it's just to kind of hear him talk about, I mean, the, the issue is a lot bigger than what I thought it was. And I am, I'm astonished how much those pythons have established themselves into the Florida environment. Yeah, when I, I moved to Florida, South Florida here, um, August of last year, and did I freeze went, now? Oh, there we go. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I moved here from August of last year, and um, like a few weeks before I moved here, there was a story in the news of the the record longest one found in Florida at 16 feet, and then a few weeks after I moved here, someone broke the record again with a 17 foot long one. And, that, uh, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, <laughs> I went. And I went looking for some on this road that was supposed to be pretty good one night, and I ran into a group of guys. I was talking to them, and I was, and they were like, "Yeah, we've only been here one other time." I was like, "Did you find any?" And they're like, "Yeah, we found five in this road." I was like, "That's crazy." It, yeah, it's just it's so amazing to hear how these animals establish. But again, this is the it's a perfect example of how an invasive species can affect the local ecosystem and just become the superior competitor. Have you um, been having any trouble um, with, like, the Belize government or any kind of, like, politics or anything like that as far as uh, conservation goes? Um, they've been... The Belize government has been very supportive of the research. We don't get any funding... Um, from the government, you know, we will have officers coming out with us ever so often. So trying to train them up because we are we are the primary responders um, in regards of crocodile issues, um, crocodile issues on the mainland in Belize, and a lot of the issues. It's not the, pro- the crocodiles are not the problem. It's it's not the bad behavior of crocodiles. It's the bad behavior of humans. Humans are habituating crocodiles, which is causing them to lose their fear. And so, you know, the, it's there's an increase of an attack. Or sometimes they're just, you know, with all the the rainy season and sometimes the flooding, you know, crocodiles get displaced. Um, we do not use the words problematic or nuisance because that subconsciously puts fear into people. That this is a, I mean, yes, crocodiles are dangerous, but 
has did that animal come to your backyard because it's waiting to to eat you? No, it just it got it it got lost trying to find its way to a river or to a lake, you know. And so that's why we like to say displaced because it's just like oh the crocodile is lost, right? If you're lost in a neighborhood, do people in that neighborhood call you problematic? No, of course not. And so um, we try to use these terms that just lessen the fear and lessen the demonizing of the animal. Um, so with that, I mean, there have been times where government asks us, even though they're an hour away, maybe, for us to drive three hours to go get a crocodile, you know, out of, a, out of someone's backyard or whatever. And so as much training as we do, you know what I mean? But there's always like a new rotation of officers. So there's always continuous, continuous training. But we've gotten like, you know, again, they're very supportive of us in, in that particular way. So you mentioned so is a your large chunk of your uh, conservation. Huh? Go ahead, Nate. Uh, so you mentioned you're uh, the primary first responder for crocodilian situations. Uh, what does that all entail? So um, many times that entails us, you know, just driving somewhere, assessing a situation. Um, we don't react right away. Um, I, you know, there are sometimes people are living on a waterway. There's a crocodile in the creek, and it's like that's where a crocodile lives. So, a lot of times, it's education. Education is key. I think conservation would be in a better place if people sometimes took back a bit of percentage of putting their effort into research and actually educate because you can do all the research all you want but if people don't understand the facts about the wildlife if people don't understand the importance of the wildlife they're not gonna give excuse i mean hopefully it's okay i can cuss on this but no one's gonna give a shit about about crocodiles you need education is key and so there was one particular example where this woman, she lives on the lagoon, and she was asking, you know, like, oh, like, there's this crocodile that keeps coming on my bank, and it's going to walk up my stairs, and it's going to wait for me and, and eat me and my dog. And I was like, I don't know what movie you saw. Maybe it was Lake Placid. I don't know. And I was like, I'm not removing that animal. And she was just like, well, and it, it was a good-sized animal. It was about eight feet. And I said, that animal is doing what it does. That crocodile is coming out, it's basking. I, My team and I, we sat with her for days. We brought beer in the evening to go over what that animal was doing and telling her, do not feed it, do not harass it. You see kids coming, you inform them. Do you want us to put a sign out there and like just, just talking to her? We never removed that animal. Now, neighbors call us and then tell us, hey, we saw this crocodile. They take a picture. It was doing this. We have created a community science program out of that. And so that's what we, so you're talking about, you know, what we do for, like, as a first responder. Our first response is educate. We educate. We try to build tolerance. We try to build an interest in coexistence. Then if there truly is an issue, so, for example, like, if a crocodile is stuck in the backyard, we'll take it. <laughs> we'll take it. But, like, part of taking it, we utilize the time 
to educate people about the animals. And one thing is so important is, especially now in this, this age of social media, people like to be identified, especially for doing something good. <laughs> and so anytime someone informs us or you know helps us out with the crocodile, thank you for being a wildlife champion. You know, you are a model for your community. You're ensuring that the wildlife continues for the next generations and you're keeping a piece of Belize alive because wildlife is part of our culture. And it just, and we highlight them on social media. We have highlighted people on the news and newspapers. And if anything, that gets people fired up to want to help out more. And then they're like, wait a minute, I, I want to be identified as a wildlife champion. You know, every, at the end of the day, everyone wants to be a little bit of a leader. And so that's something that we truly try to identify. And so it's just for, I always tell people, CRC, conservation is not going to last because of us. It's going to last because of the community. We are merely a catalyst for conservation. If you want to ensure that conservation lasts, it's long term, you have to get the community involved. The community needs to be educated. If they do not feel involved, the community is not educated, your efforts are for nothing. And that is something, and that's, I think one of the reasons, and I will, you know, and it's because people tell me, and so I will pat the back of the CRC, we have made such a big difference in a short amount of time, especially where we are at in the Placencia Lagoon. And some people will say in Belize, but it's because we have stressed education. And I, I'm a scientist, I love the research, we keep doing that, but I, everywhere we go, we always push education. So, um, in Belize, it may be different in Belize because of the cultural differences and stuff, mm -hmm. but like here, especially in, in the South, people are very, uh, they know what they know, and you can tell like so many times that, it, like I worked at the Kentucky Reptile Zoo. And I know this guy, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I worked at the Kentucky Reptile Zoo, and there's this uh, guy that came in, and I was giving him a tour of the facility and everything, and he was talking about how he had a copperhead in his house, and he showed me a picture of it, and um, it was a Midland rat snake, and I told him, I was like, well, it looks like that's a Midland rat snake, and he's like, he's like, no, no, it was, it, was a, it was a copperhead, and he's telling me all about it and stuff, and I was like, well, we have a Midland rat snake right here, and I, I showed it to him, and I was like, well, and I was like, look, I mean, that's what it was, he's like, no, no, it was a copperhead and stuff, so do you get a lot of that in Belize? And if so, how do you help educate people like that? Oh, oh yeah, I, I get that a lot. Like, no, we just have one species, or they know a lot more. And that's the thing is, um, it's having a conversation. That's one thing I always, you know, I always make sure that we teach. But my team's great at it, and any interns or volunteers, students that come with us. The one thing is, um, don't preach. Just have a conversation and so I'll let people you know they're talking to me and telling me all these interesting facts and stuff and then I'm like okay well let me share like what I know you know and then I just and I I, I, I provide the suggestions you know I, I, I provide the suggestions and you know sometimes people do take what I say um, you know and of course there's gonna be some that are very like very very strong in their beliefs but it's just well, here's some other suggestions. I never try to tell people they're they're wrong because, I mean, just in general, like, right? They're, if you feel, if something's been told to you, especially like a grandfather, right? And it's just been passed down. How, 
you saying that my grandfather's wrong is being disrespectful to my grandfather, you know? And so that's where you have to like, okay, I'm not being disrespectful to grandpa, but maybe this is what grandpa meant. You know, you provide that suggestion. Your grandpa wasn't wrong, but maybe this is what he meant. And it's, oh, okay. You know what I mean? So it, it, it is just like maybe providing that other avenue that gives them a little bit more of the truth. And so that's kind of how we, we work it, but it's never, you know, and even, I, I mean, again, I, I worked in Louisiana, I've worked in Florida, and even just here and what I've heard when I've done work in this particular region where people are like, you know, the only good alligator, the only good crocodile is, is a dead one, you know, like throw it on the barbecue and this and that and all that kind of stuff. And I never get mad. I, that's one thing. Cause a lot of people, they just want to rile you up, right? They just, they want to just poke at you. Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, like what, you know, I just go, Oh, well, that's interesting. Can you tell me why? And like, the, cause you know, I'm the crop conservation. I should be like, no, 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 you can't do that. That's illegal. They don't care if it's illegal. That a lot of these people, they don't care if it's illegal to like to cook up a crocodile, to cook up an alligator out of season, right? They don't don't use the legal terms. It doesn't work at first. You know, these again, these people just want to rile you up for some reason. So, oh, okay, well, why is that? Why? T- tell me why. Uh, uh, you, you get people just, they don't know what to say. Cause you're like, yeah, I, I know you're full of BS. Like you're just, again, you're just pushing at me. So it's just, you know, don't react very, I like for us, I always tell them don't react, you know, just it, it ask, just reply with the question because a lot of times they just don't know what to do at that point. And they're like, Oh, you're not going to get mad. It's like, no. Or like for here, what throws people off? Oh no. Crocodiles like, it's really good like this. It's illegal to eat crocodile here. And I'll be like, nah, I like it more like a po'boy in Louisiana with their seasoning and their eyes just like open up. Cause I did have alligator when I was in Louisiana and they're like, wait, but, but you protect them. And I'm like, but I also understand in some parts of the world, it's culturally accepted, even though the, that animal is respected, it's culturally accepted to eat them. You know, like it's a source of protein and that usually just, okay, you're not that, you're not that bad anyways. You know, (laughs) it's just just like really, it's like sometimes just watching people off guard, it just totally just mellows out like any type of conflict. And so that's something I have definitely learned. Um, So you mentioned, you know, education is obviously a big part of your conservation efforts and stuff. Would you say like, um, when it comes down to like the, the practical stuff, like would you say it's more like um, ensuring that they're um, that they're not used to humans or habitat, or would you say it's kind of like a mixture? Is your main focus in in regards of our education? Are there's so many misguided beliefs and false facts about animals uh, about crocodiles, and so it's really we're trying to really dispel them. And again, here in Belize. And I can say for, you know, the American crocodile throughout this particular region, it is timid and shy and it wants nothing. It wants nothing to do with humans. Um, And so really trying to educate people that these animals are only going to act out if they feel threatened, if they feel scared. So if you see a crocodile, admire it. This was a deity of the Maya, you know, the, 
the Maya, so one thing, so Belize, even if you're not Mayan, there is pride in the Maya culture. The, the, I mean, it's an amazing civilization, and a lot of people don't realize crocodiles were held so high to the Maya. It's actually the first symbol of the Maya calendar, calendar Emish. And crocodiles were not a sign of death. They were a sign of life, of fertility. There's so many cool stories about crocodiles in the Maya culture. And so we provide that to people and they're like, oh my gosh, like really? And it's like, yeah. And, and that's something that we do is like, it is providing those facts so that we can build that interest in coexistence and people don't, not fearing as, as much, but also building that cultural pride you know like i was um speaking with a friend living in the u.s it's just like you know bald eagle that might not be your favorite animal but that is a symbol of america the united states what people don't want to people get mad even if you're not a big bald eagle fan oh my gosh someone poached someone hunted out a bunch of you know or stole bald eagle babies like that that that's a uh, an arrow into your the American pride into your heart and so that is something that we're trying to connect with crocodiles if someone illegally kills a crocodile that was not doing anything or if we see a huge decrease of crocodiles that that should hurt you that that is someone is taking away a bit a piece of your culture a piece of your history and I say history because when you start talking you know, to the older folks here, they'll have great stories about crocodiles. I just found one um, from a, I just heard about one in a Creole village that they actually didn't kill the crocodiles there because they felt um, it was kind of like a werewolf, right? Like you change into a wolf, but you would change into a crocodile. So if you killed a crocodile, you were possibly murdering someone. So it's like, you didn't even touch them you know and it was just because these people were so tied to the water so and crocodiles are obviously in the water and so you never knew if that was actually a, a crocodile or a person it was very very fascinating story again I just learned that about this last week and so there's all this really unique history and culture so and it, we don't do that just with the crocodiles but we try to do that with the jaguar and, and other animals like there's you know you don't you don't want your kids and your grandkids to only see these animals or understand these animals through stories because we were selfish and hunted them to extinction. Um, a good example about that is, did you know the country um, animal for Korea is the tiger? But they're hunted to extinction. And the younger generation is throwing a fit. like. How could this be the symbol? Like, how could we kill something that was the symbol of our country? And so there are some tigers now. I um, A friend was telling me about this, that are slowly moving in, and everyone is doing everything they can to protect these animals because a lot of these, these this younger generation is just like, who are we? Because we've, we hunted to extinction an animal that we have so much pride for like and so it, it is again just people yes money's a big thing but culture's a big thing and so if you can bring in culture and make that cultural tie that connection people also do get an interest of wanting to protect a particular species 
how do you find the balance between so you're talking about like um sharing like some of the um the stories of like how it ties to their culture and everything like that how do you balance uh those stories with like more of like the factual base about like the crack the crocodilian stuff because like you know like some cultures will they'll hunt something to to extinction because of like a a cultural mythological story about it as well so how do you how do you balance that to make sure that it stays the cultural story stay on the positive side so at least for beliefs all the cultural connections to crocodiles like when you look at the maya and now as i'm starting to build up on some creole connections they're actually all positive so that's been pretty easy for us um and when you like kind of tie in the facts so like this is actually a really cool fact um so in the maya culture so we have the dry season and we have the wet season and there were some maya villages that were a bit nomadic and so when the rainy season come they might find like a, a seasonal pool of water and and the the villagers would you know obviously set up there and then as the dry season would come and that pool or pond of water is drying up they would find and it, it never really stated but knowing the science and the facts i know i could i could say 99 i'm sure they would put a three to four foot more or less crocodile in this pond and they would have a warrior watch that crocodile and he would have to watch over it 24 7 and then one day that crocodile would get out of the water and start walking through the jungle more or less crocodiles are known to disperse on land up to five miles a day and so the more and it's like and we know this i've been sent game camera traps from jaguar researchers that were like marissa a seven foot crocodile keeps passing through the forest and they were saying the the two bodies of waters are like several miles apart and but they're they're this animal would just move through the forest and that was a seven foot crocodile so three four foot crocodile and the warrior's job was to follow that crocodile to the next source of water but also in a sense to protect it because a three four foot crocodile um can be prey to a jaguar but it, it's this this kind of interesting cultural story that also is kind of you know provides some cool scientific facts with the more or less crocodile given again it is a it's a terrestrial it can be a terrestrial predator and so that's something that we kind of tie in so a lot of times with these cultural stories that we know we do tie in some of the scientific facts that we know as well um why so why 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 are more why do more let's do that travel over long distances on on land uh that's a really great question um part of it is most likely dispersing to try to find new territory um you know especially with the sub-adults they they may be in a river where uh there's already too many adults female and male where they can't really have their own territorial space and so they go searching for territory for habitat um the other part is like there there is some knowledge that's known that they just they may be going out hunting so but no one has really documented that that is something that i have heard over the years from 
jaguar researchers as well as just from hunters they have seen these animals hunting in the middle of the jungle but there's been no scientific hard evidence um to to back that up do you think that could if, if that's the case do you think that could be because um they're uh they're being out competed by maybe uh, the american crocodile or, or another species in, in the water so they have to go on land to hunt I mean, it, it could be that they, you know, again, they're they're going out hunting for, for more food. It could just be something that's opportunistic as they're going through the jungle. They, oh, you know, there's an agouti, a gibnai, which is or a raccoon, and they just kind of go for it. There, Someone did send to us within the last year. It was actually really cute. You can tell it's like a two, three foot, more or less crocodile. And a game camera got it as it's jumping up after a night bird. And it just, it looks so cute because the bird was so much bigger than the crocodile. But again, this was like in the middle of the jungle. And so are they actively going because there's something evolutionary in them that they want to go after terrestrial prey? Or again, is it just more opportunistic? And most would say it is just opportunistic as they're going through the, um, going through the jungle, but that's that's where someone actually has to do the research to back up those that hypothesis. Do you know if anyone's doing that? No, not right now. Mm. There's so much research to be done. If yeah. anyone just wants to go do research, or everyone's like, you know, I want to work with crocodiles, but I need to figure out a project. Oh my god, I have hundreds of projects people could do, <laughs> and I know I'm not going to do in my lifetime. Like I, I have so many students that are pursuing research questions that I have had for years and I am totally okay not to be first author on those projects because for me at the end of the day it's just I want I want to know like I I don't care who does it you know again I don't have to be like the lead I just this is something I would love to know in my lifetime so that's that's kind of me as a as a scientist I don't need my name in the in the limelight all the time. So uh, that, it, that's that's always a good mark of a scientist. It just the main driving factor is curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in the previous episode we uh, just recorded, we interviewed uh, Chris Dieter, and he mentioned that he's doing a joint project with you. Could you give us a little bit more detail about that? Yes. Yeah, so Chris, um, he is the main investor um, for the CRC in regards of um, buying 25 acres here in the Placencia Lagoon so that we could set up a captive and rehabilitation facility for crocodiles here in Belize. So right now we have, um, CRC altogether, we have three crocodile ambassadors so captive crocodiles we have one maester Eamon or just known as Eamon Eamon is blind but Eamon actually lives I mean I guess you can say at my house um he is a very shy crocodile he is blind because someone got a machete and chopped at his head he does not like men he has only bonded with me I have tried to get him to bond with other people and he just he just won't um so it's pretty much me and Eamon only and um he's a very wary crocodile and i will tell you if 
if crocodiles had PTSD, well, this is an animal that someone could do a study because he definitely has PTSD from being um, being abused that caused his blindness. Uh, he does not, again, he does not like men. He particularly does not like Latino men because the area that he did come from um, was mainly mestizo. Um, additionally, there's certain work trucks. If he hears a certain work truck, I will not see him for three weeks, no matter what. Um, there's just certain sounds that just spook him and I will not see him for a while. So, and this is after three years of working with him. Then we have the two um, crocodiles, captive or yeah, captive crocodiles that are on the land that is Gillian Sam. And Sam, let's go back to the very beginning of the podcast. Sam met Steve Irwin. Well, actually, Gilly met Steve Irwin, too, in 2003. But Sam was this feisty little moralette that she kept going after Steve Irwin when um, he was discussing um, about Morlitz crocodiles and their pawns and stuff like that. And so <laughs> she's actually on one of Steve Irwin's, like, shows. It's fantastic. So she's our little starlet, as I guess you can say. So they're both at the facility. And so working with Chris, we're actually going to build up eco-tours um, and bring people out to our land. I would like to create some hiking trails. I want to build up the forest there because the forest um, needs to be reforested as it was once agricultural land. So I really want to help build that pine savanna up, have some a nice uh, hiking trail, as I'd mentioned, possibly even camp out there because we do have wildlife. We do have a resident jaguar. We have various um, uh, wildlife that also includes the tapir as well as armadillo and various types of parrots. And so there's a great chance of viewing some of, some of the lease's wonderful wildlife. And then also, of course, giving an educational tour utilizing our crocodile ambassadors. Um, do you, um, two things actually. So when I, when I was doing a study with, uh, mice, um, I was actually like just reading some literature on how, like, how they can be stressed and how it could affect like the specific project that we were doing and stuff. And I'd read that mice, there was a study that suggested that mice tend to be in, in general, just afraid of men more than women. Um, across the board do you find that to be the case in like um in crocodiles or in crocodilians in general if they find like one gender they're scared of more one one gender than another you know that's really funny that you say that because i mean I, again i understand why amen does not care for men <laughs> um sam has built a bond with me that even her previous owners had mentioned, like she, she's so calm with me. She's a sweet puppy dog with me. Again, if you saw that old episode, so it's when Steve Irwin came to Belize in 2003 in regards of the 20 year anniversary of the Belize Zoo. And again, you'll see her, she's feisty. She's trying to bite Steve Irwin. And then if you go on my Instagram, I'm at crocparasites13, um, you can scroll down and you'll see some of my training videos with Sam. Like she'll allow me to pet her head and stuff. And so she's, um, and, and that's been something that's been a little bold on my part, but it's just been very interesting building this bond with this animal. Um, and then Gilly, 
again, going back to male versus female, my male employee and some of my interns, they're like, he just really won't come out of the water for us. And like yesterday, I just completely pulled him out of the water with our target training session. And he does that with the other females. So it's really interesting that you say that. Um, now, I, and well, I, I'm like thinking of a colleague and friend of mine, Joey Brown, who's now the general curator at the Hope Zoo. He used to work at the San Diego Zoo, and he had showed me some of his training videos, and they're responsive to him, and I've seen him train the, or, or interact with the um, crocodiles at the Hope Zoo, and they, they respond to him, but that's really interesting. I wonder how they would respond to a female. Like, I mean, they go to him, yeah. but now I'm like, maybe I should ask him to see if he can train one of his female keepers and see how the crocs respond to that. <laughs> I, I always wondered if maybe it was because, um, and I, I don't know, this is just a complete guess, but I was I always wondered if maybe, like, animals could somehow distinguish the, between genders of uh, other species, and then since males in more cases tend to be more aggressive that they understand that they are less likely to be hurt with a female than a male. I don't know. But um, the other thing is that, that seems to be that you're, that the crocodiles have really good memory. Um, do you know like anything about that? That's pretty interesting that they, that they're able to remember stuff like that three years later. Yeah. So the crocodiles are said to have the, learning capability or the intelligence of a five to seven year old child. So these animals are highly intelligent and you know, you can see their intelligence through target training sessions. So target training, you know, it's just, or even clicker training, it's what you see in dogs. It's what you see um, in a lot of mammals at zoos. And I mean, there are, now I know more zoos are doing clicker training or target training with reptiles as well. So these animals are highly intelligent. They do have memory. Um, pretty much my guru when it comes to target training and understanding crocodilian behavior is my good friend and colleague, Flavio Morrissey. And he was, he kind of like talking, and I know other people have been doing it, but he had started working at Gatorland, I think he said in the 1980s. And he was talking to people about training crocodiles and everyone's like, you're ridiculous. Like you're insane. Like these animals don't have that type of cognitive ability. And, you know, he was, I'll never forget. It was in 2014 at a meeting and he showed this video with him with alligators. I believe it was at animal kingdom where they're swimming to a vet and he trained them to swim up to the vet, turn around, Pretty much they started lifting their tail, allowed the vet to lift the tail, and the vet was able to draw blood. This was out without restraint, and that was because of training. Um, and these animals, so obviously they had the memory, they were desensitized, and imagine the reduced stress from always having to capture an animal to do some type of physical examination. And this was just amazing. And then he had talked about training an animal in Florida, and then it got shipped to a facility in Arizona, and he hadn't seen that animal in 10 years. He went to the facility. It was like, oh, yeah, I, I know that animal. Like, I know that crocodile. And he did one of his, one of his target cues that he had did at the old facility. That crocodile remembered. So these, 
these animals have amazing memory. And that's interesting, too, because I remember seeing a documentary, and they were talking about ravens, and ravens, of course, are one of the most intelligent animals out there. And they were talking about how they did a study where they scared the babies with, like, this weird mask, and then mm-hmm. they would go up to them two years later, and then the babies remember it, and they thought that was the coolest thing that they'd remember for two years, but ten years, that's insane. Yeah. Highly intelligent animals. So, Matt, you have any other for, further uh, questions? Uh, uh, no, do you? No, I think that's all my questions. <laughs> no, I think that's all my questions. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I had a great time having a conversation with you all. It was really fun. And again, I always just love sharing my experience in the world of crocodiles.